Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zola. Africa, amka na unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Nuhoko and Figile Lugwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, former Burundi minister Hafsa Mosi shot dead in Bujumbura. Thousands flee renewed violence in Central African Republic and violence displaces thousands of people in South Sudan. In economics, South African retail sales remain resilient amid tough conditions and in sports news, the IOC calls speculation that Russia could be banned from the Olympics. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musam. A Zimbabwean magistrate has freed the leader of the anti-government This Flag campaign, Pastor Ivan Mawarire, ruling that the state did not follow procedure in charging him. Harare magistrate Vakai Chikwekwe refused to remand Mawariri in custody. He says that the National Prosecuting Authority's decision to change the charge after he was arrested was unconstitutional. Mawariri was arrested on Tuesday for inciting public violence after he called for national stayaways. The state changed this charge to overthrowing the government by inciting civil disobedience, which carries a much longer jail sentence. Rwanda's foreign minister has called the killing of former Burundian government minister and spokesperson Hafsa Musi and assassination in a country in violent political turmoil. Musi was shot dead in the capital, Bujumbura. The president's media advisor, Willy Nyametui, tweeted she was shot by criminals. Before joining the political arena in Burundi, she was a journalist working for Radio Burundi in the capital city. In 1994, she joined the Kiswahili service for Channel Africa in Johannesburg. She later worked for the BBC's Kiswahili service in London before she returned to be appointed Burundi's minister of information. South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa says South Africa will continue working with the leaders of South Sudan to ensure lasting peace in that country. Ramaphosa, who is President Jacob Zuma's envoy to South Sudan, says he has been in contact with its President Sobekere and his rival Rohik Macham following the renewed violence in their country. Hundreds of people have been killed in recent fighting between supporters of the two. They have now declared a ceasefire. Ramaphosa is cautiously optimistic. They have committed themselves to an immediate ceasefire and we have urged them to make sure that that ceasefire should hold and they should ensure that their forces are kept apart and there are no further outbreaks of hostilities. It is important for us as South Africa uh, that uh, the peace that was signed for a few months ago should be maintained and we are prepared to continue supporting them. We're supporting them diplomatically. We will make sure that uh, the peace continues to hold. 
The Mozambican Department of Health has announced that the country has been certified free of polio. The department made the statement following a meeting of the Africa Regional Certification Commission for Polio Eradication in Algeria last month. There's also hope that the virus, which still affects millions of children worldwide, can be totally eradicated. Abongile Dumako reports. The African Regional Certification Commission for Polio Eradication advises the World Health Organization. A certification process reviewed progress of Mozambique, Niger and Chad. Experts say polio could be eradicated worldwide by next year, completing the mission that began in the 1980s. Polio, which spreads rapidly among children, remains dominant only in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And finally, the Food and Agriculture Organization has warned governments across West and Central Africa need to be vigilant as the highly infective H5N1 bird flu spreads across the region. The strain can infect and cause deaths in humans and kills poultry at a high rate. Cameroon has become the latest country in the region to detect the virus following outbreaks in chicken farms in the country. Jocelyn Sambira reports. This is the first the disease has been found in Central Africa since 2006, bringing the total number of countries that have battled the bird flu to six. These countries are Burkina Faso, Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, Niger, and Nigeria. Nigeria continues to be most affected, with the total number of outbreaks exceeding 750, with nearly 3.5 million birds dead or culled. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African Time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The Burundian government has expressed regret over the assassination of former Minister Hafsa Morsi, a member of the East African Legislative Assembly who was gunned down in the capital, Bujumbura, yesterday. In a press statement, the Burundian government urged Burundians to avoid falling into the trap of what they call a terrorist and provocative act perpetrated from outside. Bernard Bangukira has more from Bujumbura. These are cries and lamentations of Hafsamosi's family members and relatives at the military hospital in Bujumbura, where the body of the late chairperson of the East African Legislative Assembly's Burundi chapter was lying shortly after being gunned down by unknown gunmen in the capital Bujumbura in the morning of this Wednesday. The incident occurred around 10 a.m. Reports from police and witnesses say she was near her home and a tinted car knocked her from behind and as she went out to see what was happening, the killers opened fire at close range. Hafsamosi was quickly rushed to the military hospital located not far from the scene where she died shortly. The government of Burundi says her death is a huge blow to the country. In a statement read by Philip Nzovanariva, government spokesman later in the evening, the government of Burundi condemned the assassination and urged the judiciary to do whatever possible to arrest and bring the perpetrators before the law. The government of Burundi has learned with dismay the dastard assassination of Honorable Hafsamosi, former minister and currently member of the East African Legislative Assembly, in an ambush near her home located at Gihosha in Bujumbura town this Wednesday, July 13, 2016. This crime is perpetrated in full session of inter-Burundian dialogue underway in Arusha.
Arusha, Tanzania, and in preparations of the conference and the summit of the heads of state of the African Union underway in Kigali, Rwanda. Burundi loses one of its most devoted children, and her death leaves an unforgettable vacuum. The government of Burundi expresses its strong indignation and condemns with its highest energy this despicable act, which is not the first targeted attack against a public authority coming to what seems to be a new method of terrorism in the form of murder and targeted attacks apparently imported from outside. Considering the way those terrorists carry out their attacks, the government of Burundi calls on competent authorities to immediately conduct urgent investigations to identify the perpetrators of this murder and their potential sponsors so that the law is fully applied. The death of Fafsa Mosi came as a huge blow to many, especially journalists with whom she worked on various radios. Apolinea Nirora is a presenter at the Burundi National Radio. For him, it's a great loss as a great journalist and considering what she did for media industry even during her various positions in the country's leadership. Well, uh, when I learned that Hafsamosi was killed, uh, well, I, I really felt so sad, so sad, and I couldn't, I couldn't believe uh, that Hafsamosi was killed. As somebody who worked for Burundi National Radio and other radios, including the BBC, she really did a great job. And with regards to other posts like the spokeswoman of the president in 2005, the minister of information and communication, the EAC minister, I know she has always been doing well. She did well uh, when he, she was taking the post of uh, the minister in charge of information. I remember that she she had always worked for the promotion of uh, the journalistic career. Hafsa Mosi was the chairperson of the East African Legislative Assembly's Iyala Burundi chapter and is believed to have played a critical role in Burundi's integration into the EAC. She joined Iyala in 2012 after several years of serving as a state minister, first as an information minister and then as East African Affairs Minister. Hafsa Mosi was also well known in the media landscape of Burundi where she worked as a presenter at the National Radio before joining Channel Africa and later on BBC in 1994. Her death stands as just the latest killing of a politician amid the ongoing crisis in Burundi. Assassinations of government and military officials have become widespread in Burundi since President Pierre Nkurunziza announced he would run for a third term in April 2015. The political turmoil that ensued has resulted in a protracted crisis that is yet to wind up as efforts to reconcile conflicting sides are yet to bear positive results. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankokira reporting from Bujumbura. Burundi's peace talks are likely to collapse after representatives of five parties that participated in Burundi's general election boycotted a second round of talks in the northern Tanzanian city of Arusha on Tuesday. The five parties were unhappy over the decision of the mediator, former Tanzanian president Benjamin Mkapa, to invite Burundians accused of human rights violations and involvement in an attempted coup against Ngurunziza in May 2015. Our correspondent Gabriel Zakaria has more from Dar es Salaam. Burundi has been mired in crisis that has killed more than 450 people since President Pierre Nkurunziza pursued and won a third term last year. 
Opponents said his move violated the constitution and a peace deal that ended the civil war in 2005. Dialogue in Bujumbura last year between the government and the opponents failed to bridge differences and talks mediated by Uganda earlier this year also swiftly stalled. The five parties were happy over the decision of the mediator, former Tanzanian President Benjamin Mkapa, to invite Burundians accused of human rights violations and involvement in attempted coup against Kurunzinza in May 2015. Jean Didier Mutabazi is a spokesperson for the five parties. Sasa tuko Viamatano, FNL, Florina, Piebu, Radebu, na sawanya frodebu nyakuri sasa sisi leo tumetoa statement we are about five political parties and we have issued a statement to the facilitator telling him how much we have been disappointed from the dialogue after realizing that various groups including activists and political parties that did not show up during the election are participating in the dialogue and we don't agree at on the other hand, representatives from other groups, including activists, have expressed their disappointment following the decisions made by the five parties threatened to boycott the dialogue, which they believe is an important stage to bring calm the current political crisis in Burundi. Mambo imarizike, tunafikiria. Neither opposition nor government or activists can tell us not to take part in the dialogue or else we are not supposed to be here. Everybody here wants to see things get to an end. Early in the day, three former presidents of Burundi were seen walking out of a closed session chaired by the facilitator Benjamin Mkapa. Dr. Bashiru Ali, who is a political analyst and senior lecturer at the University of Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, told me he believed there should be a light of green from the dialogue, though the work is tough to convince all sides to keep away their state of differences. Negotiations for peace are very delicate and they are usually ups and downs. And I will not be surprised to see that kind of, um, well, not a statement, but um, of challenges. But uh, I hope, because the, the former president of Tanzania, who is the chief uh, mediator, will manage that situation, of course, in consultation with other people. So it's too early to say that uh, the negotiations are not likely to take place or are not likely to be successful. And uh, for those who know about the history of uh, political conflict in Burundi, will understand that this exercise cannot be easy. And the hope that I have is that at least all players in the negotiations have trust with the mediator. I haven't heard them saying we don't trust the mediator. Arusha is said to be also the location for the negotiations that led to the deal to end the ethnically charged 1993 to 2005 civil war in Burundi. Reporting for Channel Africa in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, I'm Gabriel Zakaria. In 2009, the United Nations declared the 18th of July as Nelson Mandela Day. This is in recognition of the former South African president's contribution to the culture of peace and freedom for all. Channel Africa, celebrating Mandela Month.
At least 42,000 civilians have been displaced by the latest violence in and around South Sudan's capital, Juba with tens of thousands of newly internally displaced persons sheltering at UN, NGO and church compounds in the area. UN peacekeeping chief Irvre Latsu was addressing the UN Security Council as pressure builds on its members to expeditiously impose an arms embargo on the country called for by the Secretary-General earlier this week. Moon has also urged the council to expand sanctions to include leaders and commanders responsible for blocking the peace process and for the UN mission to that country to be reinforced. Sean Bryce Peace reports. The UN says the situation in the country remains fluid, and while the ceasefire called by both President Salva Kiir and First Vice President Riyad Mashar appears to be holding, further violence cannot be ruled out, as peacekeeping boss Hervé Latsus explained. The initial government figures uh, report that at least 272 have been killed, including 33 civilians, but I would believe that this is only the tip of the iceberg, giving alarming reports indicating that over the last few days, civilian, many civilians were barred from reaching safer grounds, including the compounds of the United Nations. Two UN peacekeepers and a UN national staff member have been killed, while seven additional peacekeepers and one international staff member have been injured. We can less than ever afford to sit idle as the people of South Sudan yet again bear the brunt of the intransigence of their leaders. Yesterday, media outlets reported that President Salva Kiir had dismissed Deputy Foreign Minister Chirino Hiteng, uh, allegedly because he was present at the GAD ministerial meeting in Nairobi. You will recall that this Deputy Foreign Minister was an appointee of the former detainees' party to the peace agreement. That unilateral dismissal <coughs> in itself is a breach of the peace agreement. So if this is a forewarning of what is yet to come, then even more clearly only a strong political and coordinated approach can still salvage the peace process. The peace agreement was penned by both parties almost a year ago in August last year. The special representative of the Secretary-General based in Juba, Ellen Magret-Loy, spoke to the press via video link from South Sudan. There are definitely problems with command and control within the uh, various uh, South Sudanese armed forces, be it uh, the, uh, the, uh, the SPLA or the opposition forces. Uh, and we have seen that uh, with some of the looting that has taken place in the aftermath of, of the fighting. But uh, both of them have ordered their soldiers to return to base. I think they are trying, but I would also say that there are problems with command and control. She was asked about the whereabouts of both President Kier and Vice President Mashar with reports that the latter has left Juba. The last time I spoke to President Kier was today. I had a meeting with him in, in the presidential uh, compound where the fighting, in fact, erupted last Friday. And I could still see the bullets and the bullet holes and the remnants of that. I met him here around noon, I think, our time. Um, and I met with him also the Vice President Van Aiga. 
uh, later in the afternoon, I uh, spoke on the telephone once again with uh, the first vice president, Dr. Rick Marshall. I don't know where he is. I don't know if he has les left Cuba. He's not in his temporary residence uh, close to the UN base. Frustrated and exasperated are probably two words to best describe UN officials and diplomats we speak to after a Sunday emergency meeting followed by a call Monday from the Secretary-General for Council Action, another meeting Wednesday on three fronts, reinforcing the UN mission with additional troops and equipment, possibly leading to a more offensive posture, targeted sanctions against those who impede the peace process, and an arms embargo to cut off weapons and ammunition supplies, that have proved so devastating to so many in this already two-and-a-half-year civil war. I'm Sherwin Bricebees in New York. Outgoing African Union Commission Chairperson Gosazana Laminizuma says the violence in South Sudan is unacceptable. Laminizuma was speaking at the opening conference of the 29th Ordinary Session of the African Union Executive Council in Kigali, Rwanda, yesterday. From Kigali, Silvanas Karamera reports. The Council of Foreign Ministers in Africa have started their two days meeting in Kigali, Rwanda, ahead of the weekend summit of African heads of states. But during the opening of the meeting, issues of peace and security were top on agenda. Participants dwelt so much on what countries must do to stop escalation of human catastrophe in South Sudan. Speaking in this meeting, the African Union Commission Chair, Dr. Nkwasazana Lamini Zuma, said the continent is concerned. It is with grave concern that we start this executive as over the past few days we see the resurgence of conflict in South Sudan after more than two years of talks. Hardly two months after the formation of the government of national unity, the belligerents seem to be back in their trenches and the people of South Sudan, instead of celebrating five years of independence, once again are barricaded in their homes or must flee like sheep before the wolves. She called upon member countries to respond immediately since what happens has just gone beyond imaginable hold. As a continent, we must respect the lives of our people. Governments and leaderships are therefore to protect the vulnerable, to serve the people, not to be the cause of the people's suffering. What is happening again in South Sudan is totally unacceptable. The continent cannot stand by and witness the suffering inflicted on the children, women, men and young people of South Sudan inflicted on fellow Africans. Members of the Council of Foreign Ministers in Africa accused some foreign states of meddling into continent politics. Rwanda's Foreign Minister Louise Mushichuabo says foreign countries should provide equal platform to equal gains with African countries. There is no question that we as a continent appreciate our partners and the work we do with them and the support they provide to us. But I'm sure they also understand that um, our common endeavor would work better if we do our part right, which is to truly take time for ourselves and our continent and obviously keep them posted. I spoke to Ambassador Ismail Shergui, African Union Commission on Peace and Security. As we speak, I think... Uh... We have uh, indeed a lot of challenges in the continent. The first ever big challenge, I think this is the challenge of, of this century, is really terrorism. And uh, this is spreading from Somalia, North Mali, Libya, to 
the basic uh, lactate basing with the Boko Haram. The continent has no longer have this problem of interstate conflict, which has been taken over by intrastate conflict. Let's take an example of South Sudan. To what extent the African Union is going to be fully solving this crisis? I think you are right. We we all express uh, anger and uh, and really uh, indeed we are we are disturbed. You are disappointed. Uh, disappointed, but also disturbed by the resumption of of this crisis and the killing of innocent people. Uh, so I think that we the Peace and Security Council has just met here and issued a very strong community calling for the leaders of the country to to be up to their responsibility article 4 of the protocol establishing peace and security council of the african union has the right to intervene in a member state in case of grave circumstances such as war crimes genocide and crimes against humanity but critics have been concerning about the reluctancy of the union since it has never worked its stock silvanus kalimera reporting for channel africa it's 8.25 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. More than 6,000 people from the Central African Republic's northwest Oham Pende province near the border with Cameroon have fled into Cameroon and Chad to escape resurging violence between Muslim Seleka militia and Christian anti-Balaka militia. Last year, United Nations officials had hoped that a visit by the Pope in November and the election of a new president, Faustin Achange Tuadera, in December would bring an end to the violence between Muslims and Christians in Central African Republic. Meanwhile, as President Faustin Achange Tuadera marked 100 days since his election. He warned that the Central African Republic remains in danger with the entire regions controlled by armed groups. Louis Mudge, Africa researcher at Human Rights Watch, gives us an update on the situation in the Central African Republic. So what we're seeing unfold in the Juan Pende province has two factors. The first factor is that this is a traditional migration route for po-herdsmen, They move their cattle between Chad and Cameroon. They move them with the rains. And there is always some degree of conflict between these herdsmen and the agriculturalists, the majority of which are either animatists or Christians. So things do break down on a Muslim, non-Muslim line. This is a traditional small-level conflict that we've seen for years. Now, the second aspect in what's new is that Seleka and anti-Balaka elements are becoming more and more involved in this migration and in the protection for the Seleka, the protection of these co-Muslim herders. And for the anti-Balaka, they are involved in attacking them and being uh, associated with the villages. So what we're seeing is this historic migration that did have some levels of conflict really being ratcheted up on scale. And this is all playing out in the Wampende because I think personally, we were up there last month, I think this is because this region was quite stable and you had a lot of people moving their cows through it over the last couple of years despite the conflict. And from what we can ascertain, anti-Balaka elements started to attack them. And so the people, they reached out to the Seleka, who in turn offered them protection 
And what we're basically seeing is the really large-scale human rights abuses and war crimes unfolding now in this new region because both the Anti-Balaka and the Seleka, they use rape as a weapon of war. They shoot indiscriminately at civilians, including women and children. So this is why we're seeing 6,000 now who have fled the country, but there's also many thousands more who are internally displaced who are sort of moving around IDP camps internally. Now, Toadera has been trying to reconcile Christians and Muslims. You know, he was even seen celebrating the end of Ramadan with Muslims in the capital city, Bangi. So why has the fighting resumed? Well, the, the fighting hasn't only resumed in Wampende. Bangi itself has been seeing some pretty high levels of fighting over the last few weeks. And the reason is pretty clear. I mean, Twadara, yeah, you know, he's, he's certainly trying to reach out to the Muslim community. He's making demonstrative gestures to reach out to this community. But the fact is, is that, number one, we're still talking about a very, very highly armed and militarized country. So small arms are just everywhere and very, very easy to come by. And number two, we're still talking about war crimes that have been committed since 2013 without one individual being held accountable. So for any potential would-be spoiler, for any potential would-be warlord, there's all reward and very, very little risk in picking up the gun. There has been no movement in the national courts on any of these warlords. There's only a handful of anti-Balaka who are locked up. There's virtually no Seleka who are locked up, and none of them have had any trials yet, so we don't even know if they're going to be freed or not. The International Criminal Court launched investigations, but until now, we're still waiting to see what the outcomes of those investigations are. And a special court, a special hybrid mixed court with international and national judges and prosecutors has yet to really take off. So for anyone who wants to get involved in racketeering, get involved in pillaging, it's still open season and they can still get away with it with complete impunity. Now, you know, many people had been hoping that the United Nations peacekeeping force, the Pope's visit before the elections, the election of a new president would somehow combine to tranquilize the fighting and end the civil war. But, you know, still, the Pope's visit was to the capital city, Bangui. The new president is sitting in Bangui. And, you know, it seems that there's little control over the rest of the country and the peacekeeping force is just in Bangui. Is there any control over the rest of the country? No, I mean, in Bangui, when we refer to the capital, we call it the Central Republic of Bangui. This is not something new to the Central African Republic. That was Louis Mudge, researcher in the Africa Division at Human Rights Watch, focusing on the Central African Republic on the line from Nairobi, speaking to Joseho Dingake. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you in the headlines. 19 people have filed their candidacy to contest Gabon's August 27 presidential elections. A Zimbabwean magistrate has freed the leader of the anti-government This Fly campaign, Pastor Ivan Mawarire, ruling that the state did not follow procedure in charging him. And the Food and Agriculture Organization has warned governments across Western Central Africa to be vigilant as the highly infective H5N1 bird flu spreads across the region. Those are the stories making headlines.
Thank you, Anne. A Zimbabwean court has dismissed charges against a religious leader accused of trying to overthrow the government through an internet campaign that inspired rare protests against President Robert Mugabe. Pastor Evan Mawariwe appeared in a packed Harare courtroom yesterday draped in the Zimbabwean flag after spending the night in police cells. Magistrate Vakayi Chikwekwe said prosecutors presented different charges from those read out to Mawariwe when he was arrested. Shinganyoka reports from Harare. The national shutdown began on Wednesday with its key organizer behind bars. This second stay away not as successful as the first. The city centre was subdued, but most businesses opened, and the public by and large reported for work. We are being harassed by the police at their roadblocks, but we can't stay away. We have to work. If we don't, we don't eat. Outside the magistrate's court, this flag supporters gathered, praying and singing. Hundreds of ordinary Zimbabweans, civil society, business and the church. More than a dozen lawyers lined up and offered to represent Ivan Mawarire. His arrest is a blatant abuse of the criminal justice system and we are here to vocalize that position and to show our support in more ways than one. We are not going to just sit down, be in the offices and pretend everything is okay. There is nothing okay about a person being arrested in blatant breach, breach of his constitutional right. It is enshrined in the constitution. A peaceful protest is not a crime. Zimbabwe's this flag leader appeared in court facing a new and more serious charge of trying to overthrow the government. The state claims the posts on the hashtag this flag calling for a national stay away led to violent protests against police and businesses last week. The maximum penalty is 20 years in jail. The defense argued that the new charge was unlawful as the accused had not been given the chance to formally respond. Mawarire's social media campaigns calling for national shutdowns over alleged corruption and misgovernance have gained popularity among ordinary Zimbabweans. He was arrested on Tuesday and initially charged with inciting public violence. The court ruled that changing the charges after he was arrested was unconstitutional. Outside, his supporters erupted into song and dance, holding a candlelight vigil until Mawarire appeared in the late evening. I want to thank the many Zimbabweans that have shown that we can unite. May God bless you because the country you are building is for your children. Keep building Zimbabwe. Don't give up. May God bless you. Meanwhile, his arrest was trending on social media in Zimbabwe and South Africa. Zimbabweans held protests at the embassy in the United Kingdom in support of the pastor. I'm Shinga in Harare. Egyptian-born Nouran Rifat is the winner of this year's Barclays Latelier Annual Contemporary Art Competition. The Barclays Latelier is regarded as South Africa's premier art competition aimed at young emerging artists aged between 21 and 35. The competition offers the artists the opportunity to receive recognition for their work and develop their talents abroad. This is the 31st year of the competition, which has played a leading role in launching the careers of many South African artists who have become household names on a global level. This year... 
artists from Zambia, Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, Botswana, Egypt, Seychelles, Mauritius, Ghana and South Africa were invited to participate. For more on this, Tutungubeni spoke to Barclays Art and Museum Curator Dr. Paul Bayless. The world that remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. From July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. The Barclays Latale Art Competition has been running for 31 years now. It's focused primarily on providing a platform for young and emerging artists. So artists aged 21 through to 35 may enter the competition. What we've done uniquely this year, because for the past 29 years of the competition, it was open only to South African artists. Last year, for the first time, we opened it to some of our neighboring countries. And this year, as Barclays Africa, and as our partner, Sonava, we opened it further to 10 countries across the African continent. And those countries are primarily where we as Barclays Africa have our office in those particular countries. And during that, we've invited the artists to participate and really showcase their work and the talent through this competition. Would you say that this competition has improved the artists' careers? Well, I think on the one hand, you know, being the nature of a competition, you always have to have a winner. You know, but at the same time, besides this recognizing the individual artist that walks away with the top prize each year, at the same time, we also look at how we identify the talent that comes through or the artists that enter the competition, because that's one of the opportunities that this competition allows. It allows for the identification of young talent, artists that are still trying to build their brand, get their name out there and, and get a foothold into the visual arts industry. Secondly, One of the important things that we do, we look at, is how do we nurture and support these artists? So in addition to the winners walking off with a residency, an international residency, we also put the artists through a professionalism course in terms of assisting them. How do you manage your career as an artist? That was Dr. Paul Bayliss, Barclays Art and Museum Curator on the line, speaking to Channel Africa's Tutungubeni. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Theresa May has become the UK's second female Prime Minister after taking over from David Cameron yesterday. Cameron resigned following the UK's decision to leave the European Union. Tributes were paid to the outgoing Prime Minister during his final Prime Minister's questions, as our UK correspondent Dan Whitehead reports. Six years and 62 days in charge. David Cameron left Downing Street after what has been a turbulent few months in British politics. It has been the greatest honour of my life to serve our country as Prime Minister over these last six years and to serve as leader of my party for almost 11 years. And as we leave for the last time, my only wish is continued success for this great country that I love so very much. Thank you. 
His legacy, legalising gay marriage and leading a successful campaign to keep Scotland within the UK, are among his major achievements, although it is likely to be dominated by one decision, Brexit. And so it was out with the old and in with the new. Theresa May formally asked by the British Queen to form a government. Theresa May's intray is full and it's all urgent. She has to unify a Conservative Party which has been split over recent months and start that process of getting the UK out of the EU. She'll be under pressure from Brussels to trigger Article 50, officially starting that two-year countdown to Brexit. Ian Dunt is the editor of politics.co.uk. They will try and put that off for as long as they can because it is the only bit of leverage Britain holds over the EU. It has nothing else. So while the only thing really stopping them, of course, from, from putting it off forever is the fact that they're going to upset the same European negotiating partners who they then need to deal with when they do press the button. Arriving at her new home, number 10 Downing Street, Theresa May delivered her first speech as Prime Minister. As we leave the European Union, we will forge a, forge a bold new positive role for ourselves in the world. And we will make Britain a country that works not for a privileged few, but for every one of us. And now, the work begins. Dan Whitehead, London. Organisers of the Miss South Africa 2017 pageant say the overall winner will receive 60,000 US dollars in cash from sponsors Sun International and cell phone operator South Sea. The winner will also receive a bouquet of prizes that will elevate the competition to being one of the richest pageants in the world. The winner to be crowned at a live televised ceremony to be held at Sun City at the end of March 2017 will receive the monetary prize a car, an international holiday and other prizes in a package that exceeds $140,000. More from Public Relations Manager at Sun International, Claudia Henkel. I think absolutely. We are very proud in terms of how Miss South Africa has evolved over the years. I think that with regards to Miss South Africa, there's always a place in society for these competitions as there's a place in society to have a president or if there's a place in society to have, you know, famous sports people. The Miss South Africa brand is there to create opportunities, entrepreneurial opportunities for young women and to be obviously ambassadors for the country and role models. Now, in terms of the pageant itself, over the years it has evolved. Well, at some point, there was not a lot of um, interest in the pageant, but over time we've seen, especially since South Africa winning Miss World, there's been a lot of yes. interest in the pageant. Would you say that there's been renewed interest compared to maybe, let's say, five years prior to South Africa actually getting the Miss World title? I think the answer to your question is twofold. Absolutely, when Rolene won Miss World, it elevated the pageant and put us on an international platform. And it's really escalated what the purpose of Miss South Africa is and how she can be a brand ambassador for our country on an international stage. Secondly, you must remember that a few years ago when everybody used to gather around the TV and watch Miss South Africa, it was the only reality TV show that was offered. Now we are bombarded with various channels, various reality TV shows, and therefore the consumer has so much to choose from. So I think when people say that the interest of the South Africa has declined as opposed to 15, 20 years ago, it was because there wasn't so many options. In the last three years, we have definitely tried at the South Africa office to bring in new, exciting, relevant factors into the pageant which keep the consumer or the viewer interested. 
And of course, about the reality shows, is Miss South Africa looking to diversify? Are you also looking into diversifying, maybe uh, expanding into making sure that it's an interactive show that people actually will be tuning into? Absolutely. And I think that we did have a reality TV show three to four years ago. But we did away with it because we thought we found that the engagement wasn't as high as we uh, would have liked it to be. What we have done, however, this year in particular is that we've expanded our regional castings to various places in South Africa as opposed to just the three big regions, Durban, Cape Town and Johannesburg. And we have allowed the public to join us on those actual regional days. So they can come to one of the Sun International properties and um, they can view exactly how we narrow down the judging process and also, you know, be there and to vote for their favorite contestant and to be engaged at that particular point in time with what is happening when we narrow down in our regionals. Now the competition has one of the biggest prize packages in the world. We absolutely believe that Miss South Africa aligns with the international standards in terms of their pageants. We try to align ourselves very much to the Miss World organization as well as the Miss Universe organization. And they offer a generous prize package to in the monetary amount to the winner because it also sets them up and allows the girl to use her entrepreneurial instincts to use that money the way she sees fit during her year of reign. So the main thinking behind allowing this prize is Firstly, because it's a deserving prize. And secondly, because we want to instill her with an entrepreneurial opportunity to do with the money with what she wants to do with it, whether it she wants to, you know, look after charity, whether or not she wants to invest it. It's up to her. And I think that's a very exciting happening in the history of Masala Africa. That was Claudia Henkel, Public Relations Manager at Sun International, on the line speaking to Tutungubeni. Our economics update up next with Tabisa Lahoko. Thanks, Sabalungile. CFC Stanbic Bank has unveiled the Chinese currency, the Rwan, at its branches to facilitate trade between Kenya and China. The first transaction was made on Wednesday morning by the Chinese ambassador to Kenya, Liu Xianfa, at an event held at the bank's headquarters in Chiromo. The availability of the Rwan currently at CFC Stanbic is one such offering and is expected to enhance business operations for Chinese enterprises as well as ease access to funds for Chinese tourists coming into the country. Nigerian consumers are increasingly comfortable with online shopping, both from local retailers and foreign online stores. They are some of the world's most prolific users of mobile devices to do shopping. reports. This is according to a new study conducted in Nigeria by Ipsos, a global market research company, on behalf of electronic payment provider PayPal. According to findings from the research, Nigeria is home to some of the keenest mobile shoppers on the African continent. 
The Central Bank of Liberia has suggested that government redouble its efforts aimed at building a vibrant private sector through, among others, the provision of strong credit support. Credit easing is a policy tool used by central banks to make credit more readily available in the event of a financial crisis. Credit guarantee, however, is the guarantee that often provides for a specific remedy to a creditor if the debtor does not return the debt. An energy expert has challenged the Zambian state company Zesco to take a bold step to bring solar power plants into the grid as part of the immediate solution to the power deficit Zambia is facing. Jeffrey Chiyumbe says that the problem of power should not be taken as business as usual, but as a crisis that needs immediate solutions. Chiyumbe says some of the immediate solutions to the problem could be the promotion of solar power plants that could feed into the Zesco grid. Local firms in Rwanda have been impressed by the opportunities presented by the Tanzania market. Private sector players who participated in the recently ended Dar es Salaam 2016 International Trade Fair in Tanzania say the country could help expand Rwanda's export markets. A local handicraft dealer, Maureen Rukwiza, says the products exhibited by Rwandan firms created a lot of interest among Tanzanians and other participants. She says this could eventually translate into new business deals and partnerships with their counterparts. The U.S. dollar at this particular juncture trades at 1438 to the South African rand, 1062 Botswana Pula, 1045 in Zambia, 75 British pound, 90 euro, gold $1,339 and platinum $1,090 pounds, brand crude $46.77 cents a barrel. This is Lulu Gabu's Africa Rise and Shine. If you're streaming online, you can have a glance at her there on the internet. Um, she does really look good today. If it was an OB, Lulu, I guess your fans would be seeing how good you look. Channel Africa's economic update. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Fila Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, starting off with Olympic news. International Olympic Committee IOC President Thomas Bach says athletes from one sport should not be punished for the sins of those from another. Cooling speculation that Russia could be banned from the Olympics altogether for systematic doping. The World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, is due to issue a report on Monday covering its investigation into allegations that a Russian state-run system helped doped athletes escape detection at the Sochi Winter Olympics of 2014. Travis Tegart, head of the United States Anti-Doping Agency, is one of the several people who have said that if the report does confirm the allegations of systematic doping are true, then Russia should be banned from the Rio Olympics. Russia's track and field athletes are already banned as a result of state-sponsored doping. On to football news. 
Peter Musimani, the head coach of South African football side, Mamelodi Sundowns, left the country last night for Cairo with his soldiers for Sunday's CAF Champions League match against Zamalek of Egypt. Sundowns are gunning for nothing else but maximum points to put one leg in the semi-finals. If they achieve the goal, Peter Musimani charges will need a draw in the last two remaining matches to claim a spot in the semi-finals. Despite the star duo of Kamabiliat and Kigandoli, and skipper Tabontiti, suspicious duo to illness and injuries. Musimani says nothing will stop his team from topping Group B on Sunday night. Yeah, they've chosen the coach. They had the they had the Scottish Alex McLeish, and then he's a local coach now. Uh, but the same, the game of. The, the, the tactics are the same, they haven't changed. There was games of uh, Alex McLeish and there was the game of the local coach. They're still playing the same way. Uh, yeah, no, typical North, Amer- North Africans, typical a game of Satif. Uh, avoid set pieces. Uh, big boys, you know, they're big all the time. And uh, they are, they've got a proper technique, you know, they deliver the ball. Uh, look at the games we played Satif, the, the delivery of the free kicks. In the box, they deliver it well. The corner kicks are all perfect, and they've got the height. We got to be on top of our game on that and stop making uh, 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 silly mistakes. In cycling news, African outfit dimension data were in the thick of things again as the 103rd Tour de France rolled back into action. Even the 10th stage had been an athletics or swimming event. Sprinter Edward Boisson Hagen would have got a bronze medal on the 197-kilometer race to Revel. Michael Matthews of Orica Bike Exchange won the stage, outsprinting Peter Sagan of Tinkoff and Boisson Hagen, respectively. And South Africa's Rio Olympian Darrell Impey was also in the thick of things, ending sixth on the stage. IOC President Thomas Bach says the lack of golf stars at the Rio Olympics will be a key factor when deciding whether to keep the sport for Tokyo 2020. The world's top four, Jason Day, Dustin Johnson, Jordan Spieth and Rory McIlroy, are among about 20 golfers to have withdrawn from the Olympics, where golf is making its return after 112 years. Many have cited fears about the Zika virus, but the withdrawals have led to questions about whether golf will remain in the Olympics. IOC President Bach says the presence of a sports top stars will be one of the main categories considered in an evaluation after Rio. And lastly, the biggest names in the world golf have gathered on the Aisha coast of Scotland for the 145th Open Championship. Nick Dye reports. It's the impeccable turnout you'd expect, with Jason Day, number one in the world, next best Dustin Johnson, arguably playing better than anyone after the US Open and WGC victories. Jordan Spieth is almost always a threat, and Rory McIlroy returns, having missed last year's Open. He's practiced repeatedly at Troon over the last week, learning the places to go, and critically, the places not to go. It's a very traditional links course. Nine holes go out with the sea to the right, turn and come home, often into the wind. The weather is likely to be testing. Every facet of one's game is examined. Zach Johnson defends his title against a who's who of golf. That's just what news at this moment.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, former Burundi minister Hafsa Musi shot dead in Bujumbura and thousands flee renewed violence in the Central African Republic. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.ca.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. And taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Berita with the song title Tandolut. Jangan lupa